Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Thus far, the preaching of God, uh, reading of God's perfect word. May he now bless its preaching. For 11 chapters, we've been reading together, taking in together some terrifying news about how God will deal with Judah's sin. And the, the good news, the part of the story that we are drawn to and should be, is that God, in his grace, will triumph over that sin. He will preserve a remnant for salvation. But it's been tough. Chapters 13 all the way through 35 of Isaiah are going to return in more detail to the difficulties that God's people will face because of their unfaithfulness. The majority of Judah are still in rebellion against God. And at present, even the faithful remnant are as uncertain about the near future as are the wicked. It's like in Micah where we said again and again, things will get darker before there is light. How is a believer to respond to this news, this promise, this series of Isaiah's sermons on the triumph of God's grace over sin when they also know that they're preparing for some of the hardest times that they will ever experience. Isaiah 12, you see, sits right in between the two. And Isaiah 12 is a song of praise. If we were going to write a song of praise for God in this kind of moment, what would it say? Stylistically, Isaiah builds this hymn around verse 3. Thematically, that makes a lot of sense. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Verses 1 and 2 are a personal testimony. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are a corporate mission. And verse 3 in the middle is the reason and the power for each. We can imagine some Judean hearing Isaiah for the first time, listening to this praise and being a bit beside herself. I'm supposed to praise God now? My world is collapsing. I see Syria on the move. The prophet says Assyria is right behind them and our rulers are not following God. 
I'm supposed to praise God now? Imagine the Judean soldier charged to defend the city from this attack. He doesn't deny that God is worthy of praise. God has done great things for his people. He remembers. But in this moment, God's hand seems to be against his people. Is this the moment for song? Am I really expected to muster a hymn of praise and thanksgiving when my heart is overwhelmed with uncertainty? Here's how another pastor answers. He says, verse 3 is the key to a spirit of praise flooding our hearts. It's out of our delight in God that we find our prophetic voices. And hear this. He says, true Christianity isn't primarily a matter of control. It's primarily a matter of overflowing fullness. That is the triumph of God's grace. A clever preacher might have started this morning's sermon with the question provocatively, is your religion in control or out of control? The response that comes to what God has done, the response in your own mind and then with your lips and then with your hands, is your response to God in control? Is it carefully measured or is it overflowing fullness? One of my favorite things to watch at the Braves game is when things get really exciting and we get so caught up in the moment of what happens that you can see strangers screaming and high-fiving with one another. The, the excitement of what occurred provoked something. The need for an emotional response wasn't calculated or planned. It just came out. A few years back, John and Stephen and I went to Las Vegas and saw four consecutive fish shows. That wasn't exactly Stephen's dream scenario. So one of my favorite moments and memories of that whole trip was Stephen jumping to his feet with a smile and a shout when they finally started a set with one of the few songs he was excited to hear. That experience of emotional overflow. It's something we all know. Maybe it's pride in our child's accomplishment or the thrill of victory, or a personal best. Maybe it's gratitude and relief from a dangerous near miss, or a a cumulative and contagious kind of laughter that happens in the presence of dear friends. It's not planned, and it is certainly not controlled. The occasion for this overflow is the salvation we read about last week. The occasion is the triumph of God's grace that we've been reading about for a few months. Yes, it's amidst judgment and hardship, but a promise is made and a promise is being fulfilled. God will save his people. Kids, you heard here the language that Isaiah uses is that of drawing water from a well. You've been really, really thirsty before. And what do we say when we're really, really thirsty? We say, I'm dying of thirst. 
It's a little bit dramatic. It's a little bit silly, but, but that feeling is there, isn't it? I must have water. You need something to drink. And that need and that anticipation of having water, they build up and they seem more and more intense. And then when we get to the kitchen and we make that glass of water, what do we do in the moment? We make all sorts of crazy sounds, don't we? We make gulping sounds. And when we put the glass down, we say, ah, as if we've just come back from the brink of death. And it's not all pretend. The water was needed. The water was really satisfying. It met that need that was before us and we responded in overflow. For Judah, God's salvation didn't come at a time when they could take it or leave it. The remnant sees rightly their utter dependence on God. They know they cannot save themselves, not from their enemies and not from death and sin. If everything were good in their lives, they'd have nothing to be saved from. But Isaiah has shown us everything is not good here. And so the pronouncement of God's grace For them, the announcement of God's plan to save his people, it does not come when it can be calmly received. It comes when the response will be an overflow of joy. With joy, you will draw up water from the wells of salvation. It's when you get that phone call with the news that you've been waiting to hear and you want to play it cool. But in reality, you're pumping your fists and you're thrilled. The ugliness of their situation and their condition has cast the beauty of God's salvation in passionate relief. The people saw and will see with terrifying and violent imagery what the Lord's wrath of judgment will entail. But in these promises, they see with equal clarity a vision of his grace. And the result of seeing that, the result of seeing it in contrast, is the song of chapter 12. As one pastor puts it, Isaiah shows us ourselves at our best, fully enjoying our God in the kingdom of our Messiah. In our suffering, we can see this purpose. It's not the only purpose, but it is a purpose. It it creates the canvas for the contrast. Judah's hardship is the canvas upon which the beautiful salvation of God will be painted. Some of you have seen the work of graffiti artists. We've all seen graffiti Petty criminals, 'er ne'er-do-wells, gangs, they'll paint symbols and words and even vulgar images on buildings and bridges around the city. And graffiti artists will come behind them and they'll creatively use those ugly and dark canvases to create something beautiful. Our lives and our world are something like this. 
Sin, rebellion, fall, suffering, it's upon this canvas that God paints the beautiful picture of redemption and glory. And the hymn of chapter 12 is the response of someone who has seen, understood, and experienced these events. The surprising turn of God's salvation. Now regarding the content of this hymn, let me just point out a few things. I said this is an overflow. That is, it's an emotional response. That's hard for some of us. But this emotional response is connected to facts. The emotions are very real. And they're unrestrained, uncontrolled. And they are connected. They're tethered to reality. The writer feels as he feels for reasons, and those reasons can be evaluated and validated and confirmed. The temptation with our emotions is to fall off of one side of the horse or the other. Sometimes we're driven by our emotions regardless of the facts. And that happens most often with fear or with anger, but it can also happen with positive emotions And in those cases, how we feel or the magnitude of that feeling is not justified by what's true. We're unreasonable in our response. But on the other hand, there are so many times, or there are so many of us, who look down on emotion. We tell people to rein it in, to settle down, to get a grip, to play it cool. And we say this to them, in our estimation, regardless of the facts. That is, to some of you, there is nothing that could ever happen that would justify an unrestrained emotional response. And neither perspective is right. Isaiah has the facts. They're the reason for the overflow. The facts are incredible. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. The facts are incredible. The believer recognizes his own condition and what is deserved because of it. And he recognizes this not because he's so clever or so holy, but because he hears and believes what God has said. The remnant hears what God says to them through Isaiah about Judah's sin, and they believe him. This is our condition, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. By God's grace, we recognize the dark canvas of our own lives and the judgment we deserve that he threatens against sin verse one refers to the need for propitiation an important bible word that we hear in the new testament our rebellion has made god righteously angry His wrath burns hot against sin. His hand is stretched out still. And what we need is something to happen that will make God not angry toward us. We actually need God to be happy toward us rather than angry. 
One of my seminary professors always used the example of a child with a messy room. And mom or dad walks down the hall and looks in the doorway and sees that the room is a disaster. And children, what do you feel? You feel the wrath of mom or dad. And I tell you, it is just. (laughs) But what should happen a few minutes later? After we've yelled, clean this mess up. And we come back by the room, and it's actually been picked up. It's actually been organized. The parent will be propitious, is the fancy word. That means favorable toward the child. The child was moved from a place of danger, not just to some middle ground. The child was moved from a place of danger to a place of favor. And so it is for the believer. Only in our case, the canvas was a bit bleaker because on our own, we had no desire to win God's favor. And even if we had, we had no ability to do what was required. Adam's disobedience created the scourge of original sin from which we ourselves could not escape. And total depravity made sure that we wouldn't want to even if we could. That's the cause for the joy in verse 2. Behold, my God is my salvation, not my efforts, not my good works, not my sincerity. What is my salvation? Behold, God is my salvation. We needed forgiveness, yes, but we needed a lot more. We needed faith and perfect righteousness and the power for new obedience. We needed new hearts. I love this summary. As God catches us up into his purpose sweeping throughout history, what do we contribute? Nothing to be proud of. What does God contribute? Grace for Isaiah, grace for Judah, grace for Israel, grace for us, grace that is greater than all our sin. This is the triumph of God's grace. Behold, God is my salvation. And it is his comfort for us in the times in which Judah currently prevails and in the times that he warns them are coming. God's comfort for us is the promise of his great salvation. He asks almost a rhetorical question. How could we not trust for today the God who has saved and secured our eternity? The Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's our strength, enabling us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. He is our song who fills our hearts and renews our spirits. He is our salvation. You probably recognize that pattern of words. That's a common refrain for God's people. It's what God's people saved, sang when they were delivered at the exodus from Egypt. It's what God's people sang in the time of Ezra when the temple was rededicated after the captivity. This is the song of the heart of someone who has seen what God has done for his people. Although I've not been speaking quite precisely enough just now. I'll get to the corporate praise in just a moment, 
But all the pronouns in the first two verses here are singular. This is a deeply personal hymn. Verse 1 says, you, singular, will say, I will give thanks. You were angry with me that you might comfort me. I will trust. The Lord God is my strength, my song, my salvation. What is your song? Not a pretend song putting on a happy face. Not the song you sing for the benefit of others. What is your song? In response to what God has done, what is your song? Isaiah's song is amid tough times. Isaiah's song is with eyes wide open, full awareness of the tough times that are still ahead. But when he thinks about his God, his comfort, his salvation, even in that moment, something just overflows. He thinks about the dark canvas. He thinks about how thirsty he was. And despite the difficulties of the present, despite the concerns of the future, at the wells of salvation, he knows there he can glorify and enjoy his God even now. And that, that song, that joy, it's not just for the prophet. It's for us. Because that salvation is not just for the prophet. It's for all who believe. And in verse 3, all the pronouns become plural. The praise of God's people is not satisfied to be alone. It's consistent all throughout the scripture that God's people don't just want to praise God on their account. They want to tell others what he's done. They want to invite them to receive and praise him. They want his name to be magnified among the peoples. And you, plural, will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he's done gloriously, let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your plural midst is the Holy One of Israel. As believers whose hearts are overflowing with gratitude toward God. We invite others into this praise, and it's praise that's already taking place. And this, this metaphor is very helpful to me. It's a biblical concept that's been very useful because there are times when I think, I cannot start the praise that God is owed. Christian, you are never asked to start the praise. This song is already happening. You are invited and encouraged to join in. We're not saying come and start this with me. We're saying join us in the song that God's people are already singing, that the angels in heaven are already singing. We're joining into the song that has been taking place. And we're bringing everyone with us who will come. And I find that so helpful because we can't all join in that song with equal enthusiasm at any given moment. 
difficulties of life, dark nights of the soul, cause us to wonder, cause us to wonder sometimes if we can ever praise again. And look what God does. He puts us in fellowship with one another. He unites our personal testimony with a corporate witness of the goodness of God. And so that my unrestrained gratitude toward God can encourage and strengthen you. I can help you lift up your voice. Your enjoyment of the Savior can prompt me to look away from myself and my circumstances and return my gaze to his glory. There have been so many times where you are the cause of my looking up. Several commentaries make a connection between this morning's passage and what Paul says in Romans 8. And providentially, I was having lunch with uh, Pastor Neil Stewart on Thursday, and he was pointing out this same connection to me in an unrelated conversation. But it's when Paul famously asks, what then shall we say to these things? And you can see in what follows, if you just take your eyes through that section of Romans 8, everything that follows is a question. And he's just overflowing. You feel it building, and it's just overflowing as he asks these questions one after another in quick succession. It's as though he's caught up, to use a rather uncareful phrase. It's as if he's caught up in the absurdity of God's salvation. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he asks, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then he asks, who is there to condemn? And then he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's not in control in this moment. He's losing it. He's saying, this is nuts. What God has done for us, what we could not do for ourselves, this is absolutely unbelievable. And the only reason anyone could or should ever believe it It's that God himself said it. Great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, to be clear, it's not lost on me when Isaiah says this song will happen. That was at the very beginning of verse 1. In that day. And in the Old Testament, that's a phrase with a lot of loaded meaning. That day began... Already, when God's people were regathered around the cross of Christ and the church is built upon the testimony of the faithful witnesses. And that day is not yet. As we wait for the consummation of all things, when God's judgment will rid the world of sin forever and vindicate his people as righteous by faith. That's why theologians call the time in which we live the already and not yet. We experience salvation already by faith, but we long for a day that is not yet here when all things will be made new. So what does that mean for this song? What does that mean for the overflow of praise that God promises will be heard from his people throughout the world? What does the already not yet mean for your personal testimony? Can we live now with this spirit of praise? 
Can you? I mean, yes. Can we? Yes, we can. Salvation is ours today. By faith in Christ, God declares us righteous. He unites us to himself. He gives us the power for new obedience. He gives us a sure and perfect future. We always have reason to glorify God because the Holy One of Israel is great in our midst too. Yes, we can. But will we now? Live with this spirit of praise? Are the voices that we hear in Isaiah 12 our voices? That in some sense is up to us. It won't be all the time. Our circumstances will bring our hearts low. Our weaknesses will give in to fear or selfishness or doubt. And Christian, there's grace for that. God's sacrifice has redeemed us from our lowest moments as well. But Paul's question in Romans 8 should prompt us to want something more for ourselves. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Isaiah 12 is what Isaiah will say to them. Here's what God's done. Here's what God will do. And what will we say? And I tell you this. The best answer will not be found in your own planning or your own organized effort. The best answer to the question, what will we say to these things, will be found in the overflow of our hearts. So to make Isaiah 12 moments more common in our lives, we don't need to think about our need to have more Isaiah 12 moments in our lives. That's just the spiral of guilt. We can think about our lives. We can think about what God has done and is doing despite rebellion and sin. We can think about the well of salvation always there for our refreshment regardless of the circumstances. But most of all, we've just got to think about God. The Holy One of Israel is great in our midst. May we glorify and enjoy him forever. And may that start even now.